0: If you are new with us today, welcome. Um, If you haven't been here for the last few weeks, we have started a new preaching series on Ezra. Uh, And I just wanted to give you a quick recap uh, about what this is, the context of Ezra. Um, I hope those who have heard it are enjoying it. Um, But just to let you know what has happened, where we're at with Ezra. Essentially, uh, the the Israelites, the nation there, had been captured. So they've been taken into captivity uh, by the reigning power of the day. That was Babylon. And... um, God actually said he allowed them to be captured because they continued to disobey him time after time. They were worshipping foreign gods. They weren't looking after the poor. They weren't looking after those who needed looking after. And um, and they were also not relying on him. They were making pacts with uh, other governments uh, when God had said, trust me. And God essentially said, listen, I'm going to come. I'm going to allow the Babylons to take you into captivity. And so what we have here is a situation where the nation, this small nation actually, has been taken into captivity in Babylon. They've been um, basically induced into all of the cultures of the Babylonian culture. And um, what's now happened as we hit Ezra is that uh, God had made a promise that he would bring them back to Jerusalem, bring, bring them back to where they originally were. And that has started to happen. So we've seen the revival of a nation. So Matt preached on chapter 1 as God turned the heart of the king there. And the king actually said, I want you guys to go back. I'm actually going to provide all the resources for you to go back and to rebuild. And so in Ezra, we actually see two different sets of groups of people going back from Babylon. And they're going back in quite large numbers. And actually in Ezra, this the largest group of um, the Israel nation go back to Jerusalem and they've been called to rebuild the temple. Okay. And the temple in Jewish history is so important. It's the centerpiece. It's actually where Yahweh lives. It's where God lives and it's where they worship. And so this for them is the fun, a foundational priority of the nation that actually what separates them from all other nations is that they have been chosen By the God of Yahweh. They're his nation. And so they have come back to rebuild. It's it's totally destroyed. They've come back to rebuild the temple. And that's about like us now, actually. As a church, our centerpiece is about worship to God, our love and our heart for him. Okay? And their first their first thing they want to do, their first foundations is to rebuild that. And we saw Chris um last week finish on chapter three, where they have just laid the foundations. And we saw a few different reactions to that. We saw the old generation weeping, maybe over the fact that actually this wasn't the same as what they remembered. It wasn't as big. It wasn't as vast. And there's some disappointment there. And we saw the younger generation just really excited. They're on this new adventure. Okay. And everything's been very exciting up to now in chapter three. You know, they've been called. God's turned a king's heart. They've been given what they've needed. And they have ventured in and started rebuilding. And then we hit chapter 4. And there's a sharp turn here. Okay? This is dark times. And what we find is that they face opposition. I guess that's what can often happen, isn't it? As we go through life, as we follow God's call, we see some victories. And actually, it's on the back of big victories. You know, they've just finished this foundation. Opposition comes. And um, what's interesting is in our life group, we're going through studying Nehemiah. And um, we have just hit chapter 4 of Nehemiah. So you've got chapter 4 of Ezra, chapter 4 of Nehemiah. And both of these chapters are about opposition that the nation faces. So in Nehemiah, what actually actually happens is another group of people come back. Nehemiah has been called to rebuild the walls around the city. So actually, by the end of Ezra, they've built the temple. But the city is not a safe place. It's a vulnerable place. And actually, they are so open to attack and God moves Nehemiah's heart and says, listen, I want you to go and I want you to rebuild the walls around this city because cities should be a place of protection, of safety. And um, and these walls were vast walls that would keep armies out. So we see again in Nehemiah chapter 4 this um, immense attack that the people come under. And um, I guess just thinking about that, there's one thing we can say when we carry out God's purposes and plans. When we look at both of these stories and we see that the nation responding in obedience, actually what happens is, I think sometimes we think, will we come under attack? And actually we can, we can read from both of these stories and when we look at the Bible, this isn't a question of will we come under attack, it's when will we come under attack? Okay? And I'm, I'm not trying to be melodramatic this morning when I talk about that. Actually, as a church, we have even seen it, haven't we? Where we have come under attack where we've been attacked, I think, from a health perspective, okay? We've seen seen lots of health situations flare up in our church in short periods of time when we feel like we're taking ground in the kingdom, when we feel like we're following God's call to build a city here in Liverpool. Do you know, there are seasons in life which are just very, very hard, aren't there? Let's be honest. There are times, if I'm honest, where I'm calling out to God and I'm saying, Lord, what, what are you doing here, you know? why are you allowing this to happen? I thought you called us to this. I thought I thought you'd called us into this area and it feels a little bit like you're not protecting us. Have you ever felt like that? Yeah. And life just feels so overwhelming with what it throws at you. And you think, do you know what? I don't even know if I can keep going with what's going on. And I just wanted to tell you a little bit about When we first arrived into Liverpool, I got this clear call to come and plant a church into Liverpool. I felt it very strongly as I was praying one day in my living room. It was, it was, it was just such a clear word. and I went to my wife and I said, listen, we've been, I feel like God's calling us to church plant and it's Liverpool. She was like, no way, you know, (laughs) are you you crazy? God's gonna have to speak to me. And of course he did several times because my wife takes a few times of uh, repetition. And he did. He was so faithful. And we arrived here, and it was fantastic. But lots of things happened as we arrived in this city that God had called us to. There we were, feeling like we just wanted to obey God's call. And I remember this one stage as we got here. I was I was still working back over in, well, beyond Leeds. It was a place called Pontefract. It was 40 minutes beyond Leeds. So I was having to leave the house at 6 o'clock in the morning. To travel to work and I was getting back at 730 so I was just absolutely shattered with the time scale with the time on the road you know even Junction 10 of the m6 is busy at six o'clock in the morning I couldn't believe it I was like what on earth are all these cars doing out at six o'clock in the morning we got sort of a few months in and Toria found out she was pregnant I mean how did that happen <laughs> wasn't particularly planned it was another like right God's birthday a church plan and this another Birthing going on here. You know, leading a church plant, establishing schools and friends for children. Those were things that we were contending with. And actually, when we arrived here, there was no schools for Jessica to get into. The only school she actually managed to get into was Northway School, which actually isn't too far. Um, but then Noah got into a different school. So, Toria, we've got, at the time I had one car. I was traveling over to Pontifract, first thing in the morning. Toria was having to get the bus to these two different schools with, for the kids. Uh, and get them there. And um, man, it was just draining. Then we had a, a project going on in our house. We bought this house. We thought, great, we'll totally do it up. And you know, we had conflict with our builders. And at the same time, back in Leeds, there was a, a breakdown going on in the church that we were in. A breakdown within the leadership. There's a lot of pain and anger. And so it just felt like, man, Lord, what are you doing? And I remember just feeling so weary and so overwhelmed with life. And um, there was partly this recognizing that we are in a spiritual battle. And the Bible is very clear about this, isn't it? It says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we've got to try and remember that actually we are in a spiritual battle. Even though Christ has defeated Satan, there's still a battle going on here, okay? The ultimate victory has been won. But we are living this out. Do you know we have an enemy still who wants to oppose us? And he wants to oppose the work of God. What's interesting, I don't believe that his strategies have changed at all. And so as we look at what we're going to look at today, I believe that we can learn a lot as a church. I believe actually we're in some very similar circumstances. And so when we are opposed by the devil's schemes, when we are opposed because we are following God's call... Um, I believe what what the devil wants to do, he wants to discredit, he wants to disgr- destroy, he wants to discourage, and he wants to disperse, okay, there's four D's there for you, he wants to do that in God's church, and do you know what, in this chapter of Ezra, I think it actually is quite a confusing chapter, if I'm honest, and we're not going to look at it this morning, <laughs> <laughs> yep, I'm just bottling it, no, um, do you know, let me explain why, In the West, we like everything to be chronological, don't we? It's very easy to follow. It makes logical sense for us. And the author here starts by speaking in the present. And then in verse 6, pretty much till the end of the chapter, he jumps about speaking about the future. Okay? So verses 6 to 23 start speaking about future events that happen or happen that the nation of Israel have come under attack. And if I'm totally honest, as you look at the chapter, there's not a lot of detail. So you find out that they are under attack. There's some things that happen, but we, the other challenge that comes with Ezra here is you get to the end of the chapter and you realize that actually the schemes that have been used caused the church or caused the nation to stop rebuilding the temple. There's a 16 year gap where they stop. Everything stops. And you don't see any of the ways that they combat the attack. And so I bottled out this morning. I want to go and look at Nehemiah chapter 4 I'm sorry for those guys in our groups because we've just studied this this week but I think this is like a masterpiece Nehemiah chapter 4 when it comes to looking at how to stand firm when it comes to looking at what schemes the devil uses because we get a lot more detail as to understand what are these schemes that he uses to attack so we're going to go through that it's a long, it's a long chapter i could to ask someone to come read it out Who fancies
1: doing that for me? Ian? Come on. You've got a great reading voice. Right. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and a charred one at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, That stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. Then I prayed, Hear us, O God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may themselves, they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. At last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites and Ashtonites, heard that the work was going ahead, and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there's so much rubble to be moved. We'll never be able to build the walls by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we'll swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they'll come from all directions and attack us. So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families, armed with swords, spears, and bows. Then, as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord, who is great and glorious, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half my men worked while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The labourers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm. When I explained to the nobles and officials and all the people, the work is very spread out and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it's sounding, then our God will fight for us. We worked early and late, from sunrise to sunset, and half the men were always on guard. I also told everyone living outside the walls to stay in Jerusalem. That way they and their servants could help with guard duty at night and work during the day. During this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me, ever took off our clothes. We carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went for water.
0: Thank you. So as I say, same situation here. They are not building the temple. As in Ezra's day, they're building the wall around the city, okay? And they're being attacked, so... um, it's very similar in that way. What I'm going to do, I'm just going to look at them, um, and it's going to be a whistle stop tour, really, because this chapter, as you can see, is huge, and there's so much going on. Um, so I just want to touch on what are some of those things that the devil uses, what are some of those schemes that happen to us to be discerning of, uh, that when attack comes, okay, and you're going to face these in your own personal lives as God calls you to live out. Uh, a life for him and live out your calling for him. And we're going to face them on a corporate level, okay, as a church. So there's two different circumstances that we can face these in. Um, and the first one is discouragement or ridicule. Okay, that's a, that's a some of you all know that is, character from The Simpsons. Aha, uh-huh, yeah. Um, this is what he does. And um, do you know, discouragement and ridicule, we see in the first three verses when Shambala heard that we were building the wall, he became angry, was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble, burnt as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing upon it would break down their walls of stone. And you know... This same tactic is using Ezra 4, okay? Um, and just to say, I, I think here in Nehemiah, this comes obviously after Ezra, I think Nehemiah has really learned something by looking at the past, okay? So the reason I want to look at this chapter is he's learned how to keep going, okay? They don't stop with all the opposition that they face, and they keep going. So in Ezra, we find out um it says then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of judah that's all we find out they set out to discourage we don't find what it is we don't find how they reacted um and that's one of the challenges of ezra chapter four um so firstly just thinking about the discouragement and ridicule here in this context you know we see it's actually done quite publicly okay Um, It's in the presence of his associates, in the presence of the army of Samaria. Secondly, there was a mocking element to it, wasn't there? They were mocking their call. Are they going to restore the wall? And they're mocking their practices. They're talking about the sacrifices. Will they offer sacrifices? It's mocking the task ahead. It's mocking the very things that God has called them to do, okay? Even a fox will break down these walls. As I said, these walls are supposed to be hugely thick, okay? They're devised to be very strong a defense against armies and you know we have the saying don't we sticks and stones will break my bones but names will never harm me it's a load of rubbish actually isn't it the reality is for most of us that words do harm okay and they do have an impact on our mood and our behavior and if i'm honest it doesn't actually take much criticism or mockery to knock us off course does it don't know about you maybe you are hardened to this I think it's very easy to become discouraged. Um, you know, even even as we, it's funny, we were out doing outreach and um, a lady walked up to Chris this this week and said, what are you doing handing out sweets to kids? So all the school kids were flying past and we're handing out sweets and we're handing out tea and coffee and, and she she ridiculed, almost like we were doing something wrong. And I I thought, this is going to happen whatever we do, whatever circumstances we're in. And you know the the truth is when we look at it and we look at society around us, the media and the press are experts at mocking the Christian faith, okay? They actually want to tell you that the church is dying and essentially it's like a titanic boat, okay? We are on a sinking ship here. That's the message they want to get over to the church. They want to mock the idea that Education should include the idea of a God. They want to try and tell you that science does disprove God, and that to believe in a God that we cannot see is simply ridiculous. Okay, even comedies that we like, like The Life of Brian, actually have the ability to undermine uh, the reality and the power of Jesus Christ. Okay, I want to say this is going to happen in your workplaces. Um, very simply, as you advance okay? You're going to come against opposition, which is going to be mockery. Um, and it's going to happen amongst your friendships group. It's going to happen even in the church. And it does. And do you know, discouragement and mockery is rife. And it's a key way that our enemy wants to oppose us. So it's crucial that we learn how to protect and fight against this one. And we're going to come on to look, and after the different ways that we see the devil uses his schemes, uh, we're going to come on to look at how did they respond to discouragement and to mockery. Okay. Second thing then, intimidation and fear. A couple of verses here, verse seven and eight. But when Shambalet Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble. Okay, there's a there's a coming together to fight. This is aggressive. Okay, they want to intimidate. They want to bring fear. Verse 11, also our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and kill them and put an end to this work. Okay, there's no no bars held there, is there? It's very clear. We will stop this and we will kill you. OK, uh, verse 12, then the Jews who live near them came and told us 10 times over wherever you turn, they will attack us. Do you know, there's a real physical fear here and intimidation tactics going on. And if I'm totally honest, when we think about this one in our culture, it's a little bit difficult to really understand. We don't often experience that level of intimidation, do we? Not in this country. In other countries, they do. Um, But, you know, I think there's something that's subtly increasing. This intimidation fear is subtly increasing across. You know, you've got the stories going on in the news, the bakers in Northern Ireland who try to stand up and live out uh, their own biblical convictions. You've got the British Airways employee who wanted to wear a cross to work and was not allowed. Um, And we are now starting to see a huge debate coming out on gender yeah, this is uh, this is going to be the next big thing to hit uh, guys gender. And uh, we've seen the first parents standing up, uh, hitting the headlines as they choose to remove their child from a school because they're, what they're saying is the school allowing children to choose their gender is confusing the biblical values that they've tried to instill in their child. OK, and. You know, the church all the time is being portrayed as judgmental and narrow minded. And do you know, there are sometimes actually when we look at the church, we have to hold our hands up and say, yeah, there are areas of the church which are highly judgmental. And we can be handling these things far better than we have done. And we need to learn how to be sensitive and how to be loving. And yet at the same time, we need to learn how to stand our ground. Okay. In a correct way. And um, I believe actually that there are going to be more and more issues that hit the church in the West. Okay, I believe we're going to come under more intimidation and fear. So as you're sending your kids to schools, I think um, there's going to be more issues that that face us as parents, I think. In, in employment and equality laws that are going to be introduced I think there's going to be more fear and intimidation um, and it's meant to intimidate um, about what you can say what you can't say what you can do what you can't do um, and it's meant to silence and paralyze I just heard yesterday from from my wife about a lady who got a job at the nursery that we send our son to and um, somebody had asked her she wore a four points band somebody had asked her about the four points ban, she'd explained it and she said, oh, the, the lady she explained to you said, so, so, do they make, do they make you have to pay when you go to your church? And she said, no, let me just explain again the four points. And the, the boss heard again and had a massive go at it. Said, we well, don't bring our personal lives in here. I don't want you talking about that. I just found this out yesterday. I was like, what? It's horrific, but there are many people facing hostility. Okay in their workplaces. And you might be in that situation as well. And um, actually what these things are meant to do, they're meant to stop us from speaking out and proclaiming what we believe God's word actually says. It's meant to actually even make you question the authority and authenticity of the word of God. As laws are brought in and they say, how dare you have that view of this on gender? Surely you've got to be open. And um, do you know, I think... um, the other thing interesting thing about this passage is you see there are areas on the wall that are vulnerable. And um, they're identified. And, of course, these are areas that the devil wants to have a go at. He wants to attack. He's going to actually exploit these areas. It isn't like, um, it's funny when we think about this, it isn't like the old English gentleman. okay? And you see it sometimes on the films. And they're having a fight. And there they are, it's a fisticuffs, cuffs. And um, they knock one of them over. And it's like, okay, sir, up you get, and you know, or let me give you let me give you a weapon back, I want to fight you. The devil doesn't do that, okay? He will see a vulnerable area and he will exploit it and he will attack. Okay? And um, it's just being aware. This is this is what we are facing. This is the opposition we're facing, okay? And if we aren't fully aware of it, if we haven't opened our eyes to this fact, well, we're gonna see what can happen. Thirdly. And this is the final one I'm looking at. And there are more in this passage. But I just wanted to pick up on a few. Thirdly, disbursement. Okay. Um, It says this. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. And we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Do you know, this story does have so many similarities to to where we are at as a church, as a city church. Okay. We're spread across a city. And we've been called to reach this city. And there's a vulnerability in this, okay, that the devil wants to exploit. There's a vulnerability that he might want to say, he might want to speak and suggest that you're not connected to the body. That you don't really have any friends. That there's no community here. That you're too thinly spread. You know, that the mission that you're on is just too big. And um, I think this is one of the key ways that the devil wants to have a go. And some of these, some of these things that I've mentioned, some of you, I know you've been going, oh, that's how I'm feeling at the minute. And I think it's just being discerning and going, okay, am I feeling like this? This was what they were facing. They had a huge, um, they had a huge task ahead of them. God had called them to build this huge wall. There was rubble all over. It was extensive. It was long. And actually, there were points that they felt very vulnerable because they were separated. We're going to find out how they respond, how they react to that. So let's, I want to focus here. I think this is where the key comes. Focus and in on what were some of the practices that they used to stand firm, to keep that opposition away. And the first one that we see, and I'm pleased this is the first one, and it's the first one we see, is prayer. This is actually like an instinctive knee-jerk reaction for Nehemiah. Have you noticed that? When opposition comes, his first response is prayer. It's not anger or defensiveness, it's prayer. And John Bunyan says this: He says, "You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed." It's great, isn't it? And do you know, honestly, this week, I felt attacked in some ways. I felt opposed in my own spirit. As we just launch Alpha, you know, um, it's a vulnerable place for us. Here we are on God's mission, here to see people saved and reached, and um, and if I'm honest, my spirit's been struggling with, man, how's the Alpha going to go? Have we got everything set up? Are we going to get anyone? Is anyone going to come? Are we doing all this hard work for? And you start to start to dwell on all these thoughts that start to come. I'm pleased to say. I prayed. Hallelujah. First time, no. And you know, it was great to just give it over to God. And um, we see actually in this, you know, verse 4, verse 9, verse 5, verse 14, all examples of prayer that are going on that we see Nehemiah praying. And you know what is Prayer. It's chatting with God, it's talking to him, it's bringing our requests, but actually there's something here passing on the burden to the one who can actually carry the weight. So when I'm carrying this weight that actually isn't mine to carry, I'm passing it on to him, to the one I know who can carry it, the one who's got it, who's over it. And it's connecting with our Father, isn't it, who is over all things. And we know that he will orchestrate all things for his glory. And so, we're going to feel fear, okay? Just like these guys were feeling fear. They were intimidated at times. Actually, that's not a, a wrong thing to feel. But how we respond in that fear is very important, okay? Do we allow it to dwell? Do we focus on it? Do we allow it to paralyze us, okay? When anxiety hits us, And we get those feelings of loneliness or separation from people. Do you know, I love to pray to the one who is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. Can I encourage you, just look at this chapter yourselves. Look at some of the prayers that Nehemiah prays, okay? Interestingly, as you look at the first one, they're being mocked. He doesn't try to justify their efforts, okay? He doesn't try to come back at them and go, but hold on. Look at this part of the wall. Yeah. Actually, the prayer doesn't focus on their ability or gifting at all. Okay? What he actually recognizes is this task is vast. And actually, without God, they cannot do it. It is, you know? And they look at it. If a fox climbed up on here, it would fall. Without God in this, they have not got a chance. He recognizes that. But when God has called them, he equips. Okay, so they come to him and they give this back to him. And they say, Lord, we know that you're sovereign. We know you've called us to this. We're trusting you with it. Okay, that's why we've got our prayer meetings. It's why we've got an early morning prayer meeting. We're trying to cultivate prayer in our church. Okay, we're trying to cultivate that. Because actually, when it comes to attack, when God calls us to Move into a new building. When he calls us to a new project. When he calls us to extend our borders. And we receive attack. Actually, as a church, we've built up this muscle. This muscle of prayer. And we know how to stand. When ill health hits. And we go, do you know what? We're gonna keep praying. And we're gonna keep praying. We're gonna pray for this skin cancer. That it's gone. That's the power of prayer. This is a weapon, guys. Second thing they do, action, okay? This is one of the interesting differences, as I said, between Ezra 4 and Nehemiah. We see that their first instinct is prayer, but they don't stop there, okay? And normally, I want to say there's often something that happens where, well, in Ezra 4, they do get stopped. They get paralyzed, and they stop for 16 years from building the temple, Okay, actually, when it comes to action, we don't see a lot of it in Ezra 4. The people, the schemes that are being used work. But in Nehemiah, we see they've learned. We see in verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all of their heart. It also says they posted a guard by day and night to meet the threat that was against them. Uh, another time he says, therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the walls at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords and spears and bows. And there's other areas in there where we see they've prayed, but that isn't it. It's not like we're praying, okay, we're just going to sit back and allow God to do this. Actually, something's happening. And I guess for some, this point can feel like a tension. Do I, Pray, or do I sort this out myself? And I think that's the tension that we can be in. And I think actually there's an element here of both hands. Okay? And we see it here. We pray. And I don't know about you, but when I'm praying, often what God does is he brings faith. Okay? Where I'm feeling like, oh, no, I've got no other option but to pray. And then I pray, and God will speak to me. Or he'll give me faith. Or he'll remind me again of his truths. And um, I remember back in Leeds, we we actually moved four different buildings in the space of sort of 10 years. And uh, there was one point I remember we essentially had outgrown our building. And we were told we were going to have to move out of this building. So we started looking into other buildings. And we looked and looked and looked. Lots of people were on it trying to find a new venue for us. And we got together and we prayed. And... um, it was a great prayer meeting, and I remember God spoke to me, and we tried out a school uh, in all of this, and they just turned around and said no, and I felt God say to me, and it was one of those things where it's like, man, I feel silly here, um, but he basically said, no, you're going to go into the school. I want you to go back to the school, and I want you to, to ask again, so we prayed, and then God gave me, he spoke to me, he gave me faith that actually, I said, listen, guys, This is what I believe God's called us to. I believe he's called us to go back to this school. God opened that door again. We went back, we asked, and they said yes, miraculously. The same happened again later on. We got into another building later on down the line. And and God was speaking about a bigger venue, in a venue nearer the city. And we approached this Catholic college, okay, that had space for sort of 700 people in this hall. And I, and, um, I felt God speak to me about this Catholic college, so I went and I said to the guys, to the, to, the, to the whole Egypt team, guys, I believe God's calling us here. They said, go and ask. And I'd already seen God come through. So I went and asked and no, sorry, it's not open. And so we did a bit more praying. Went back, asked, no, it's not open. Four times it happened. We then, we had some youth in our church who were from quite a, a rough area. And we found out that they were We found out from the school cameras that they, during the service, started going through the school and stealing things. And the school turned around to us, they called us in and said, we want you to leave. You've got two weeks to leave. And we were like, whoa, what do we do? And we prayed again. I felt God say, go back again. I thought I've been back four times to this Catholic college. Went back, the head had changed. He said, yes. And we moved into this building. It was phenomenal. And it's one of those things, God calls us to prayer, but he calls us to act. Often, when we pray, God calls us into things. Thirdly, family. We read there, therefore we stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families. Um, another one, he says, then I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. We are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. I hope you know by now the church here is a family. It's God's family. Do you know that? And, you know, families are a place that should typically represent openness and safety and a place where you can be vulnerable. And as a parent, as a dad, also um, families are a place where I want to bring protection. I want to look out and I want to provide and I think there's something interesting in this point for Nehemiah um, as we look at this story. Um, Do you know, he's not scared to point out the vulnerabilities in the wall, is he? Actually, he looks and he sees and he says, these are the vulnerable areas in our wall. And um, he then posts people by them, specifically by the vulnerable areas. And I think this is really interesting because it's the exposed areas. And I think we can apply this actually to our own personal lives and as a corporate body, That actually we need to be aware where we're exposed. Where are the areas in our church that are exposed and vulnerable? Maybe. And where are the areas in our own lives that feel vulnerable and feel exposed? And actually the whole point in family is it's here to support and to protect okay it's here to stand with you in all circumstances and i think we need to get to this point as a family where we feel comfortable enough to share those areas in our lives that feel exposed essentially we work best in accountability we work best in families those who are looking to protect us okay they're looking to help us they're looking to stand alongside us okay and um yeah, I think it's just really important that actually accountability here, okay? It's what the family's able to do. It's able to bring accountability on areas where we feel, do you know what? That's a real problem for me, and I need help. And um that other issue of being separated out and spread out, where maybe you're feeling isolated or lonely, is solved in this very issue of family again, okay? Actually, you see, he blows the trumpet. He brings everybody back together. And it for me... When I read that in this passage, it echoes Hebrews 10. Do not stop meeting together. Okay? There's something here in the corporate that is highly powerful. Okay? Being a lone ranger or choosing to disconnect from God's family. Do you know what? It's going to be a struggle. And I'm aware that there's so much hurt. Okay? I'm not unaware of this. There is hurt within the church. There's hurt within family life, actually, when we look across even just family life. And actually the, the <laughs> I was hearing from Sheila today, you know, this, this idea that actually you have an argument with someone in your families in Liverpool and you disconnect. You become hostile and you don't want anything to do with them. And unfortunately, when people are hurt by the church, they tend to do the same thing. They isolate themselves. And I just want to encourage you, actually, there's something here to learn. Nehemiah is calling us To get alongside each other. To be family for each other. To protect and to look out. To be a place which is safe to expose our own vulnerabilities. Okay? Because it's meant to protect us. So if you're feeling lonely and you're feeling isolated, make sure that you make family here. Make sure you get opportunities to expose those areas that feel vulnerable. Because these are the times where you will realize this is family. They will stand with me okay? We've been able to show it, haven't we, in ill health, where we feel exposed when someone has, has been diagnosed. And I think we've done an amazing job at being able to stand with people in these circumstances. But I'm talking about the everyday. When you're struggling at work and you think, I just, I just feel like I'm fighting a, a losing battle here. Tell your family. We have our life groups, okay? This is an area that should feel safe to say, Joe, you know I'm really struggling. I really need your prayer. I really need you to check up on me in the week. That would be great, okay? Almost done. Fourth, soldiers. It says, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Okay, they've got weapons. Those who, it says this, those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Automatically, when I think of this, you know, in their context, this was very real. They were holding a weapon and they were building the wall. But when we look at this, we also have the enlightenment of the New Testament, don't we? And I don't know what scripture comes to your mind, but Ephesians 6, the armor of God's, comes straight to my mind as we think about what does it mean to have weaponry, to be able to stand firm and to fight the fight whilst building God's kingdom. And so just thinking about some of those things, the belt of truth, you know, the breastplate of righteousness that we're to put on. You know, the devil wants to, one of the ways he wants to shame us is, is well, is to make us feel ashamed He wants to stop us from coming to God, your father. And um, when we remember our right standing with God, actually that stops us from not coming to him. The devil wants to say, no, you don't have any right standing. You don't deserve. You're dirty. You can't come. And actually, we're to put on this armor. Our right standing with God is not because of anything we've done. It's because of him. It's Jesus. You know, the shield of faith. I always think about Troy as I think about the shield of faith. Because actually there's something corporate here. And they get into this. They're coming up the beach. I don't remember this scene. They're coming up the beach and they've got these shields. And they're doing it in this sort of turtle formation, I think it's called. And they're covering each and every person within this formation. And they're throwing these spears and it's just hitting the shields. Actually, there's something in the corporate here for us. This is a This is a corporate weapon for us. The shield of faith. God loves faith, doesn't he? It pleases him much. And then the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay? We've actually heard this morning a, a, a word from Jess about the word of God. Okay? And actually, this is such an important weapon. It's an offensive and defensive weapon, isn't it? And it's a sharp weapon. We'll see, we're here, it's a double-edged sword. And uh, when we're intimidated not to speak, you know, because of laws... Or because of this policy or what have you. Or we feel like that scientists have this argument that we struggle with. And we don't know how to answer the questions. Do you know the devil, he wants to twist scripture and he wants to confuse us. And you know this weapon, we need to learn how to use this weapon. Because this weapon is the one that will stand against these arguments. And you know we won't always have the answers. That's okay. We've got Jesus. Okay. And he actually doesn't need us to fight for him. He's got it sorted. But we still need to learn and study and thrive and feed off the word of God. Finally, then, thanks for bearing with me. Remember the Lord. This is the cry of Nehemiah. Remember the Lord. Verse 14. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Verse 20 says, our God will fight for us. Do you know, Nehemiah quite rightly keeps reminding the people of the God that they serve. The great and awesome God, The one who created the heavens and the earth. He spoke creation into being. The one who opened up the sea so they could come out of slavery. The one who felled Jericho's walls, even though they were great and mighty. And he wants to remind us. Remember the Lord. Do not take your eyes off him. Do not take your eyes off him. This is just so key. To remind ourselves of his promises and truth. Of who he is and how he views us is absolutely crucial. To remind us of what he's called us into. Okay. And all the resources that he's given us. To remind ourselves of the amazing sacrifice of him giving himself. For us. And you know, as a leader of the church, I have to keep reminding myself of this as well. It's so, so important. This is his church. Okay. It's his to do as he wishes. And you know what it does? It stops me from putting pressure on myself that shouldn't be there. And it reminds me, it's not fundamentally about me at all. It's about him. It's not about me having to make this thing work by hook or by crook. Let's put on some more events. Let's see if that does things. Actually, it's his. And he's the one that we serve. And you know, if I lose him in the process of serving or leading, then I'm good for nothing. If we lose him in this process, we've lost it all. My gaze and focus has to remain on him and his ways. Because you know what? After all, he is the one who was faced Major opposition. He's been there and he's faced it all. When we think about how Nehemiah responded. And we look at Jesus. okay, In the desert after his baptism. He was tempted to compromise. And we find the devil using scripture against him. Don't we? And yet he powerfully uses scripture. To correct him. Okay. He's using the sword of the spirit. This offensive weapon. To come against the devil. As he tries to. Manipulate scripture against him. We find out throughout his life that as it leads up to his death, he was mocked and he was scoffed. Okay. He was intimidated. He was beaten. He was bruised. He was abandoned by family and friends. He was ridiculed. He was falsely accused. He was fearful. He was intimidated by the Roman soldiers and the false courts set up against him. And yet he conquered. He kept going till the end. And he finished the work that his father had called him to do. Think about it as he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. Who did he have around him? He had his guys around him. He had his family around him. Not that they were much good at that time. But these are the guys. He wanted to make sure that he had these guys around him to help him. And you know, he, he chose at all points to remember his father and he pointed always to his father. He prayed on so many occasions as he just felt tired and weary and he came back to his father and he prayed and he defeated death. He faced the most brutal opposition And he used the same tactics that were called to use to fight the schemes of the devil. I don't know what's going on in your life at this moment. You may feel like life is all rosy and you're not facing opposition. But I want to say to you, you will. You will. And we need to learn from Nehemiah and from Ezra, actually, as we see what they did and didn't do on how do we stand firm against the devil's schemes.